Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is our weekly higher education podcast right here, broadcast live and recorded live on Fireside Chat. Uh, my name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am your host, and I am excited to have you here today. We have a great show, and uh, today our topic is this cancel student deck has been the hashtag that's been made its way around social media it brings with it a great deal of division and passion some feel it's too much some feel it's not enough on august 24th president biden and secretary cardona announced a three-part plan to help struggling students and their families with ten thousand dollars of loan forgiveness to those earning under one hundred twenty-five thousand a year and twenty thousand going to those who are pell eligible while enrolled in college Previously, the U.S. Department of Education has been pushing the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, or PLSF, which, as of August 21st of this year, has approved more than $10 billion in debt relief for over 175,000 borrowers in the last 10 months. This is a stark difference from previous years when PSLF loan forgiveness was stalled and borrowers were disappointed. Today, we will be discussing the impact of the PSLF program with two actual borrowers and higher education professionals. And we will be discussing the latest news from DC and how it will hit campus. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe right here on Fireside. Uh, So before we get into today's show, we are gonna talk about our few stories that we are watching uh, this today uh, coming to us from Inside Higher Education education, a market solution to teacher shortages raises alarms. Uh, We have a for-profit alternate route uh, that is being uh, pushed by several states and agencies with public schools facing a dearth of teachers and traditional teacher training programs struggling to reduce a long declining enrollment trend. For-profit companies are offering alternative certification programs and enrollment in for-profit alternative certification programs grew by 48,000 students nationally or 283% from 2010 to 2011 uh, and uh, all the way up till today. Um, So, but our folks in our K-12 environments are saying this is not the solution for fixing our teacher problems. So we're going to keep an eye on this and we are inviting people from teacher preparation programs to the show for future shows to discuss this. Um, Coming to us from Higher Education Dive, uh, DHS details response to HBCU bomb threats, but says much more needs to be done. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security said on Tuesday that it remains committed to using its resources to ensure historically black colleges and universities have the tools they need to respond to bomb threats made against their institutions. DHS listed several recent steps, but it has taken to assist HBCUs and predominantly black institutions, which together have been the target of 68 bomb threats this year. They include providing bomb threat response training and implementing grant programs to improve security at nonprofit organizations. And finally, timely, and it moves us into today's topic, will Biden's debt cancellation jumpstart talks to rewrite federal student aid policy. Higher education associations have praised President Biden's federal student loan cancellation with caveats. Much more needs to be done. We need, we must act to modernize the federal student loan program. Loan relief without proposals for systemic reform is incomplete. And that comes to us also from 
higher ed dive. And that moves us to today's show. Um, our guests today are uh, a, well, one of them is a longtime committed listener to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, he is Doug Cooper. Doug is the Assistant Director of Student Success and Retention Initiatives at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Um, he's been there for almost 10 years. He received his bachelor's in psychology from UMass Amherst and later a master's in college student development from Northeastern University. He's worked as some kind of academic advisor since his undergraduate days, all in the New England area and mostly at public institutions. He lives uh, by the ethos of everything I needed to know I learned in marching band. Doug, welcome. And tell me, what did you actually play in marching band? Tell Hi, us. Laura. Uh, and thanks for having me. I played trumpet. So that started in fifth grade and kept on since then. Well, thank you. And thank you for being here. And if you want to go on video, I can have you do that. You uh, are welcome to do so. Um, and Keith Garcia currently serves as Director of Fraternity and Sorority Life at the Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. In his role, he is tasked with setting and realizing the vision, purpose, and strategic priorities for a community that is central to the student experience at Northwestern. He leads a team uh, responsible for the development and delivery of education on leadership, social justice, and harm reduction. He serves as the primary advisor to the executive leadership of multiple councils and chapters across Interfraternity Council, Multicultural Greek Council, National Pan-Hellenic Council, and Pan-Hellenic Association. Beyond Northwestern University, uh, Keith is involved as a leadership education mentor, consultant, and author. Keith teaches with the leadership minor at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and travels the country supporting campuses. Welcome, Keith. And Keith also, by the way, is going to a wedding this afternoon. So if he has to jump early, it's because he has to go buy a card. And uh, he <laughs> is uh, very well dressed. So we are excited to have Keith here because he's wearing cufflinks. And it is very rare that one of my guests is wearing cufflinks. So thank you for being here, Keith. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, for those of you who are new to Fireside, this is being recorded live. It will be broadcast later uh, through Fireside, or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Spotify Podcasts or iHeartRadio Podcasts. And so I invite all of you to... Uh, join in, ask any questions, make any comments, you can do so through the react button. Um, and uh, through the microphone button, you can request to come on up on stage and ask a question. Um, so uh, before getting into this, I want to frame this in that I want to appreciate both Doug and Keith for their time, because frankly, this is one of those things where we are talking about uh, a really personal thing, which is finances. And so they've put themselves out there um, uh, to actually ask, answer some questions here. Um, and to frame this, I want to ask uh, Doug and Keith to kind of talk to us about, uh, I want to start with Keith, and then I'm going to go to you, Doug. I want to hear from you about your academic journey, uh, where you went to school, what happened, and what brought you to to higher ed. We know that higher ed as a field is not uh, one of your top 10 high paying jobs. Um, and what has been that pivot to higher ed and what has that meant to you in terms of what has it done for you and your soul and your, your sense of purpose? Um, but how has the cost of your education kind of burdened you over that time? So I'm going to start with Keith and then we'll go to Doug. 
Yeah, thank you. So um, I, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out from New York City, which is home for me, right? I grew up in the South Bronx and I'm a first generation college student. Um, my mom had actually attended Hostos Community College um, when I was a student in high school, but no one on my mom's side of the family at the point which I entered school had pursued a bachelor's degree or any advanced degree at that time. And financing higher education was a topic of conversation in my home because my parents weren't rolling in dough. Um, you know, my dad was the superintendent of the building that we lived in. Um, and my mom was an administrative assistant um, in a clinic in the Bronx. And so, you know, there wasn't, um, there was a lot of concern for, you know, how much is this going to cost? What is it mm -hmm. that we need to think about as you make decisions about where you go to school? And the impact of the financial aspect of pursuing higher education became readily apparent very early. You know, I made a decision not to go to one institution versus another because of the cost of education. And I actually ended up staying in New York City. I went to the City University of New York at Baruch College. Um, and CUNY is a relatively affordable institution to attend, right? right? And, you know, in my first year, I got a lot of support and my financial aid package was something that made it feel a lot more um, attainable. Mm -hmm. But in my second year, as circumstances in my family changed, that aid dried up. And so I ended up having to pursue alternate ways to finance my education, which included things like loans. And so, yeah. um, you know, that was something that I had always been told that good debt is, is education debt, right? Yes. And so I was like, well, I'll approach this with a level of like, with less trepidation than I approach debt in other spaces, right? Credit cards, you know, other types of loans that you can get in, in spaces like that. And so, you know, I, I left undergrad with a, rel a, a relative amount of debt, nothing that was, I think, too unmanageable. But as my career aspiration shifted and my desire to pursue a path in higher education, I got heavily involved in my fraternity as an undergraduate. Um, I had mentors who were in the higher education space, um, one who's a dean of students in Ohio, the other who's a director of student involvement in Florida. And so these folks helped me to understand, you know, let's talk about what your pursuit of a master's degree looks like, because this is going to be something that you need if you want to move into this field. Um, we could argue the merits and necessity of higher education degrees as you approach administrative work uh, any day. But I think a big, uh, you know, for me, that was the path, right? That was the way that I needed to pursue it. And I moved halfway across the country to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln out of New York into a space that I had never known before. Um, and that was a big shift for me, right? I wasn't the student who had gone away to college as an undergrad. I didn't understand what it was like to navigate that. I had lived on my own in New York City for about a year and a half pre um, heading to, to my master's program. But, you know, I took out loans while I was there as well to help defray costs, to help position me to do things, frankly, that some of my peers could do without, you know, thinking twice, like attending professional conferences with the intent of networking and being, um, you know, accessible for opportunities that I would have otherwise lost out on had I not made myself a visible presence in the field. And so, um, you know, that, that was, that was how I, I ended up in the position I'm in today as it comes to higher education. You know, I've had great mentorship. I've had great support over the years. Um, and it's come at, you know, some sacrifices, right? I, I had to take on um, probably more debt than I wanted to um, to do that. 
um, and in a different position, right? Like, I think that a lot of the conversation around debt, we can probably talk about this a little bit later, is like, mm-hmm. who has to take out loans versus who doesn't, right. and the implications for that, right? Being a first-gen person of color, not having that type of experience. So those are some of the things that I think um, have, have led to this place. My passion for higher education comes from knowing that I want others to have experiences um, healthier, as it relates to finances but experiences that I was afforded higher education changed my life it definitely positioned me to be in a different context than you know many of my peers and even family who have cheered me along this entire way um but it's been um yeah it's it's been my I worked in corporate spaces before moving into higher education we could debate whether or not higher education is a corporate space but I I um I I was sick and tired of like working to make someone else rich, <laughs> to right, be quite frank, right, is the way right. that I've described it to folks. Um, I'm very happy to help my students find their way to do the things that make them rich and make them very happy. But right. that work is more about who they are as people and less about profit. And so for me, um, it's a big it's a big part of why I shifted from the, um, you know, nine to five corporate space to the higher education environment. And and some of the things that you've been talking about, Keith, are absolutely, they resonate with so many people who might be listening to this is that, you know, there's, there is a cost and like anyone who goes into education at any level knows there's a cost. There's a cost of maybe personal time or there's a cost of uh, their, you know, frankly, how much they can spend on a vacation or how much they can do in terms of their own personal wealth. But there's also the benefit of knowing what you're doing is not um, just based on return on investment in terms of, uh, you know, kind of clocking in, clocking out how much you're actually making. And to your point, we have had pointed conversations on this show about is higher education uh, corporate and uh, where are we going? So we will continue those conversations, but I think it's important. And I think what you're talking about, and I appreciate, especially when you, when you brought up how things changed when you were at Cooney and what that, uh, the financial impacts were in terms of your family, because that happens. And when we're thinking um, about changes that are systemic changes to how higher ed uh, manages financial aid. That is one of the biggest changes that I would be proposing or yelling for is this idea of when a student's life changes and the amount that their family can contribute for whatever reason, whether it be loss of job, a parent gets sick, whatever it might be, it is so slow to make that pivot happen. And I have seen in my 30 years, students take on a tremendous amount of personal debt because of something that is completely out of their uh, purview, out of their control. And we need to have a a backup plan that goes beyond emergency funds at colleges and universities that just simply put, don't, don't do it. Uh, don't do enough and sometimes can't even be used for that type of thing. So we'll put a pin on that. But Doug, I want to hear from you. Talk about uh, your journey and and uh, tell us a little bit about how that's impacted you. Sure. Thanks. So I only applied to one public institution and the rest were um, sort of high status private institutions in New England. And we've got a lot I'm of those. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I probably should have done more research in hindsight to institutions, but 
um, in keeping with um, what we had said before about how I had been in band in high school, it it became my lens. It was a real formative experience just around personal development and being part of a team and feeling that sense of accountability. And so from the moment that I saw the UMass marching band, it was it was that crystallizing moment like, aha, there it is. I'm going there. <laughs> and this worked out because I had had those very frank and you know, more frank than we had normally been in our conversations with my parents up to that point as the this is the one place we can afford to send you to. Mm. Great. That works out. So it was lucky in that way. And I felt kind of meh about it as I went into my undergrad experience. I mean, I was, I was jazzed to be a part of the band. And that was, again, sort of my, my foundation, my intended, right. (laughs) For how to manage my day-to-day experience. But as I got into it, it was, it was absolutely the right thing for me to do. It was a way to feel like I belonged, like there was a, like I had a family away from home kind of a thing. And that too was kind of like I, and I would guess this is the, uh, this is true for a lot of folks, extracurricular participation is that they learn just as much from that as they might have from their classes. Mm -hmm. And certainly true for me. Now, I had no business entering my undergrad as a chemistry major, Mm. but I switched out of that fairly quickly. And I switched to psychology because that had always been something that had resonated with me. I like trying to understand what, what people are thinking, how they choose, how they go about all of that stuff. And yet I knew that I wasn't really headed to that like kind of hardcore research kind of Mm -hmm. track. I didn't have the words for it at the time, but really what I wanted was more of like a practitioner's kind of um, experience. So my faculty advisor sort of offhandedly suggested in one experience, uh, in one meeting that I should work with the new students program. What's the new students program? I asked in that moment. And in essence, that meant working with orientation to help students get their first semester of courses figured out and make sure people are feeling like, you know, they know what they need to know and that they get their questions answered. And this happened to be another, uh, you know, the light shone through and, oh, like, yeah, this, I like doing this. This is very cool. And that's why I've been some kind of advisor ever since then, as I've, I've, really enjoyed that role. It, it does something for me just viscerally like oh, I can, I can help someone who's maybe freaking out and has been in information overload for some amount of time now. And I can help cure that and help their shoulders go down a little bit in that moment. And that was extremely cool. So I managed to get my bachelor's without a ton of debt or near zero. And so I was uh, you know, privileged and, and lucky to be able to get that to happen that way. After working for a couple of years in the registrar's office where I went to school, I noticed a couple of things. First, that I wanted to I wanted to learn more. I wanted to do more. But then also I would get weird kind of like dirty side eye looks from my 
colleagues in the next cube when I was doing things I wasn't supposed to when talking to students. So someone has to walk up to the counter and they have to get the sign, uh, they have to get their form signed to get a credit override for the semester right, or right. they're trying to take, you're you know, doing too much, Doug. Why are you doing too much? Yeah. And so I would get these weird looks. And so it started to come together for me. Like, I really like doing this kind of stuff. This is, I want to do more of this. And so when I found the graduate program that I ended up getting my master's at, I was really excited that that was a, it was a combination of higher ed administration, which there are lots of programs around for that, but that they had deliberately included a counseling component to that degree as well. Mm. That was fascinating to me. Like, wow, that's it. That's my thing. And in order to do that program, I took on a great deal of loans in order to. And that was at Northeastern University and that's a private institution and it has the private price tag. Yeah, sure did. And more hindsight, I could have done more to maybe get uh, an assistantship or maybe going full time, full bore wasn't such a great idea. But in any event, um, I took on that debt because that you know, very much seemed like the right thing for me to do. And I was in my mid twenties by the time this happened. And so I, uh, for reasons was a little naive about like, Oh yeah, sure. Well, that, that just sounds kind of like an expensive car. Mm -hmm. I'll do that. Sure. And so (laughs) it, it was absolutely a thing just like for me, you know, personally or, or, or spiritually, however we could say that that was definitely what I wanted to do. And I've done some form of that ever since. And I'm really attracted to the public mission. And so I've always been at uh, a state university of some kind or another since, mm, since the end of my uh, grad program. And so, yeah, that, that doesn't pay the mega bucks, but I've, made my peace with that. And, and it, it didn't take long to do that, but it means that, yeah, there's this, there's this extra payment hanging out there. Right. And yeah, uh, that could have gone to something else, but at the same time, I I managed that dissonance with like, this is absolutely my thing. This is what I'm going to do. And there's a cost to it. There is, I think one of the things that I'm hearing from both of you is this, you know, kind of push pull of, I can do this. And you, and you have this hindsight, you have this hindsight of, was it about where I went to school, what I did, how could I have positioned myself? Well, I think one of the things I try to tell people is we need to forgive ourselves a bit. We have to give ourselves a little bit of grace here because one of the things that we don't necessarily sign on for, or even understand at the time Um, And it doesn't matter how much uh, loan counseling they give you on the front end is how things changed in terms of you're kind of on a treadmill. Like the cost is high, the interest rates are compounded in ways that don't help you and you end up having a lot and you're, you're just paying and paying and paying and you're not going anywhere. Um, And I know a lot of people felt that way. I want to shift our conversation to what's happened with the, with the public service loan forgiveness program. And before I ask you two questions, I want to play a clip of uh, something that the department of education uh, has posted out on social media recently. Um, But after that, we're going to talk a little bit about your journey to say, 
I'm going to apply for this and what that has turned into for you. But first, I want to play this clip. Patty, how are you? This is Miguel Cardona, Secretary of Education. I heard uh, public service loan forgiveness worked. Oh my gosh, it so did. I am super excited about that. Hello. Hi, is this Sean Kane? This is Sean Kane. So I'm actually 52 years old and I still had approximately $21,000 left on my student loans. And seeing that I had zero left on my balance, um, I didn't realize how open amazing it was going to feel. Um, you know, it, it took me about another two hours just to get to sleep. Hello. Hi, is this Tamara? This is Tamara. One day I went to my account and I opened it and it said, you have been forgiven this money. And it was um, $16,000. Um, but mostly I was happy and excited about it because it just shows that you guys are hearing what we're saying about how hard it is in education. Um, and recognizing the hard work that we do. So they've been putting out some promotions, like for for those of you who have not tuned in uh, to the deadlines, October 31st of this year is the deadline to submit for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, Keith, where are you in the process? What have you done so far and what have you found? I know that everyone's at different points along the way, but tell me what you found with all of this. Yeah, so I actually learned about um, public service loans forgiveness not too long after getting to my first postmaster's um, position. And so my first postmaster's position was as a coordinator for Tenority and Sweaty Life at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And, um, you know, I knew because of undergrad, I knew about the six month grace period post graduation and some of those things. Um, but I was still like trying to get a sense of like, well, how does PSF, uh, you know, PSLF work? I, I'm just, it's not super clear, right? And there's a lot it's of- not, It's not challenge. intuitive by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. And so I was like reading this form and I was like, well, do I qualify? Do I not? I'm not certain. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to apply. If I do, great. If I don't, then what do I have to lose, right? right. The, I always tell my students that the other side of no is exactly where you were before. So like, it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, so I, I knew about it then. And what um, year was that, Keith, about? This was uh, in 2015. So I, okay. I graduated from the University of Nebraska in my master's program in 2015. Um, and so sometime in like 2015, 16 was when I, I took the opportunity to apply for um, PSFL um, uh, or LF. I, I think one of the things that I... It, it's still where I'm at now is um, I am trying to reconcile like all of the changes under the temporarily expanded program. Right. So like, what does that look like for me prior mm-hmm. to working in higher education? So I did the right for a bit. And I think I had mentioned to y'all, like after that, I was just like, I can't be this corporate want for the rest of my life. It's not what mm-hmm. I want to do. I moved, I actually moved into education and I worked at my old high school for three years here in New York city. And so um technically um that was in that was between 2010 and 13 and so public service loan forgiveness had actually already started um i think it i want to say around that time or maybe 2007 was around when they had initiated it but i knew nothing about it when i worked at the high school absolutely nothing about it um and so i i hadn't applied for it then and um i was frankly, the working poor in New York City, right? 
Um, my salary at the time when I started that job was $32,000 a year. And after taxes, I don't even want to have a conversation with you all about what it looked like to try to subsist in New York city. Cause that's what it was on that salary. Um, so when I moved to Minnesota is when I, I, I first applied, as I was reviewing the temporarily expanded loan forgiveness, like qualifiers, questions that I had were, do all of a sudden the three years that I was at the high school in New York City count towards um, my public service loan forgiveness? In addition to that, much of the time that I spent working at the high school, I made no I, I made no payments because I was consistently in forbearance. I couldn't afford to make payments. And no one had told me about income-driven payment repayment plans, which likely would have set my payments at zero, but I was always pushed in the direction of like, oh, do a forbearance, just do a forbearance, which was atrocious because I just kept on accruing interest and all these other things associated with my loans. So, you know, right now where I stand is I actually um, submitted two weeks ago. So Mohila is the new uh, for loans. I, I was working with Fed Loan before it. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually called because I was just like, I have questions. I need to speak to someone. It yeah. took an hour to get someone mm -hmm. on the phone, which is always a joy, right? right. To, to have to deal with um, government agencies that aren't necessarily in a rush. Yep. Um, and so when I got on the phone, there were still, I still have outstanding questions, right? I don't know if it's that they'll calculate and confirm that my three years at the high school count towards my public service loan forgiveness. And they'll count these pause of payments over the course of the, pa the, the pandemic mm -hmm. or, right? They'll yeah. count that or this, right? So I'm still trying to get clarity on what that looks like. Um, I recent, I went and looked at like my qualifying payments and like eligible payments. And I had a bunch that said like employment certification pending. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, I've submitted this to you all every year. I've given yep. you my salary every year right. so you could adjust my payment. How does that not also qualify as my employment verification will be unfathomable to me forever. But I guess it's two separate processes. You have to, you have to verify your, your um, salary for the purposes of repayment, but you also need to verify your employment separately from that, which I did not know. And I've been right. in this program for over six years. Um, I think the other, the, the other piece is that, you know, I, I submitted all of my eligibility paperwork about a week and a half ago, and I'm waiting for them to verify my employment for all of those backdated dates that they don't have as currently eligible payments. Um, and then I also, I realized when I submitted that, that the last time I submitted employment verification was actually last year. So I need to submit another one for this year that literally came to my email minutes before we jumped on the podcast. So thank you, uh, HR at Northwestern. I'm really Here grateful for your quick turnaround. But I had to call my old high school um, mm. or the Department of Education in New York City to get all of the information about my employment with them, right. which included things on their forms that I didn't have access to. So they were asking me for my file number and my employee ID. I haven't worked for the New York City Department of Education in almost 10 years. Right. I don't know where any of that is, and I don't have pay stubs. So um that was also an hour and 10 minute wait on a phone to speak to a human so that I could get mm -hmm. some clarity around what that information was to submit it. And when I submitted it, the Department of Education sent me an automatic email response saying, we are overwhelmed with requests for oh, I verification bet. by now. Yep. Yep. This will take at least three weeks. Right. 
And, and so, I, yeah. And, and your point, and I don't mean to jump this in, but there's people who have so many nuances. I was talking recently with some former employees of mine. I worked at a college that closed back in 2018 and they're applying and they're like, I don't even know where to start to do some of these things because the college doesn't even exist anymore. So we were able, they were able to figure it out. They were able to navigate it because frankly, the, the paperwork sits with a company that has, has the paperwork, but ultimately they did what they had to do, but keep going, Keith. There's so many nuances here. I'm glad you're bringing yeah. all this up. I think that, you know, the, the biggest thing for me is that there are still so many questions for me around, mm. especially in the wake of the, the most recent announcement um, about how does this apply to me? Right. right. And, right. you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but like there, there are things that I'm curious about. I don't know. Mm. Um, and I, I need, I, I would love answers to like, how many more payments do I need to complete? Right. right. In order for my loans to be forgiven mm -hmm. because there is a differential. Um, and, and it, it also, it, it does delay certain things, right? So you all work in higher education, you understand this. I have aspirations to pursue a PhD, but frankly, if pursuing a PhD and needing to take out loans as part of that process, mm -hmm. um, that means you're, that you're not my, interested right now, my no. payments are going to reset. Then the answer is no. Right. I don't want to do that again um, because I'm so close to completing 120 payments, right? And so there are just, there are a lot of things that I've, I've put on hold, you know, mm -hmm. that I would love to pursue, but frankly, the, the landscape around loan forgiveness is still pending. And, you know, I want right. to acknowledge that, like, I have these conversations with friends and one, one of my friends in particular who I have lots of love for, he used to work in higher education, left the field, and now works in um, the corporate space, understandably, right? We don't get paid very well. He needed to make the shift. Um, but how, how it can feel somewhat like privileged or a bit, a bit of pretense when we're having conversations like, well, I'm putting on hold the pursuit of a PhD. Well, the reality is that like, I, I just want to name like within our field, these are the things that position you for advancement. Yes. And so it's not... These about are, me being these are criteria to move up the chain like exactly. it is, this is not about that this is oh this would be fun to hang up on my wall no. that is not what this is this is actually you don't even get to be seen by a search firm or by uh the the search committee if you don't have certain letters after your name Correct. You don't even make it pass. So if it's something that you want to aspire to being a vice president or a president or a chancellor or whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, I would even say a director in some departments now. I mean, Correct. I've yep. seen directors of certain departments that you must have a terminal degree. I I take issue with that with some of these departments because you don't need a terminal degree to do these this work. But hey, that's a different show and a different argument. But if you are going to require it, we have to really look at ourselves in terms of what these requirements cost the person, um, not only time-wise, but resource, phys uh, you know, monetary resources. But I absolutely agree with you, Keith. And it puts a lot of this like scrutiny on, you know, there's a lot of kind of 
machinations of the repayments of these these uh, loans. And your to your point, when do I stop paying? How does this happen? Now that this uh, executive order has been announced, which we know it's going to get, there's going to be a stop. This isn't going to happen quickly. You know mm-hmm. that the Supreme Court's going to get involved. You know there's going to be some things that are going to happen here. Hopefully we will move through this faster than, than slower. But we don't know what this is actually all going to look like. And, um, we need to be mindful of that, but we also need to have, you know, people there to pick up the phone and not have you there for an hour trying to figure this out. And we'll talk about maybe the responsibilities of, of our professional organizations before we end the show tonight, because I think it's important because they've failed in this regard. I think the professional organizations should be doing more to help with this. Doug, as you've been listening to Keith, where are you at in this whole uh, scenario? Well, so if I could nod any more vigorously, I'd injure myself for for what we have going on. And so uh, there's a a lot to unpack here, we say that. But um, I'll do like the Tarantino. So I'll tell you the end and then go back. So like what Keith was saying, my one option for a PhD is where I work because I cannot take on the debt to do that. That's a, that's just a non-starter for me. And so, I mean, going back to um, how I entered into the PSLF space, I got my master's a year or two before PSLF became law in 2007. And so I found out about that and my mother called to tell me about that, you know, great, awesome, thanks. And so like, wow, 120 payments, you know, that seemed impossibly distant at Mm -hmm. that time. But it was a thing where I could get a little tiny spark out of going in and paying the bills and and making my payment every month. Like, yay, I'm getting there. And it, it had that vibe of in the 80s movies when they have to raise the money to save the community <laughs> center or whatever and they have the thermometer and they keep painting it. it. You know, yes, good. I'm getting there. I'm doing the right thing. And so it got to be about summer of 2017 and I was getting up to 120 payments, you know, that mm-hmm. 12 times 10. And so I was getting kind of excited. I started getting my paperwork and I fortunately only had two HR offices to track down for um, getting the their part of it signed off. And I, I remember exactly where I was. It was a couple of buildings away here on the little campus where I faxed it. I faxed, faxed it. it. <laughs> it's like it had this finality sense to it. Like, and, and there might be a like generational variable here, but it, it almost seems cinematic, right? It's gone. Yay. And I figured it was some kind of bureaucratic six to eight weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. So after I sent it off, I didn't think much about it for a while, anticipating that I might only have a couple more payments to make. I did that gleefully. I'll send off this payment. This will be the last of its kind. And... A month or two later, the letter comes through. Oh, my God, the letter came. The letter came. Open it up. And my loan does not qualify. And I thought, 
what are you talking about? It's a loan. And so you dig through the legalese and all of that stuff. And I had, and I might get these two things backwards, but I had an FFEL loan. And really what you could, the only people who could apply at that point at the very first point where, you know, it was 10 years from when it became law were William D. Ford Foundation loans. And I couldn't believe it. It was right. like, what are you talking about? Of course I've made my payments. Of course I uh, sent in the forms. And so that was, you know, that was getting on five years ago. That was pretty deflating. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, you know, so I had this sense of resignation about making my payments. Okay, fine. And then... I mean, obviously, uh, the um, extended eligibility thing. Oh, ooh, what's this? Oh, okay. I've got my paperwork ready. The HR offices at the last two places I worked at, they know me. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I've got my paperwork before. So I sent that in and I got all excited. And I just heard back um, within the past week or so. And the automated emails with the little data fields that come into yeah. the message. That said, I had made five qualifying payments. I'm like, oh, dude, it's a hundred and a lot more than that. So now my next step, again, pending what's going on with the executive order, is to get back with them like, we need to talk about my qualifying payment number. I mean, and at this point, it it has more to do with the principal for me. And I'm, Mm -hmm. you know privileged enough where I can make my payments and it's not that big of a deal, but man, I, I could have spent that money on something way more, um, you know, redeeming than, Mm -hmm. than, uh, some Navient executives, you know, third boat or whatever. So, yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at. Both of you are still in this holding pattern. Keith, you're waiting. You just kind of, you have this last piece of paperwork that's just getting in. Doug, you need to go back and ask them, hey, I have more than 120 payments done here. What What's the holdup? What do we have to do? And I think it's important for people to hear this. And I think that, you know, not to dissuade people from doing this, but I want to pivot a bit uh, to this idea of uh, the impact of potentially knowing that you're going to get ten thousand uh, dollars potentially really uh, forgiven uh, if everything goes with this uh, uh, with this executive order. For those folks who are on Pell, it would be twenty thousand when they were Pell when they were undergraduates. That is going to be a change maker for people because I think like if I look at my Facebook feed from last week when they made the announcement, I have a lot of former students who I'm friends with on Facebook who were literally crying, like crying. They're like, this changes everything. I can move out of my parents' house. I can change this up. Um, I had some people kind of go into this kind of other direction, people who don't agree with it, going down this road of people are lazy. And if you weren't so lazy, you would be able to pay your loans back. And I I pushed back on that immediately. And when I say, you have to really change your viewpoint here. The cost of higher education at the time that they went into this was more. They go into fields where, you know, I was looking at the students or former students and what they do for a living. Some of these people are pre-K teachers. They make bupkis on a year, 
okay, bupkis. And this, and it doesn't qualify in, stu- in the public service loan forgiveness because they may be working for Bright Horizons or one of these big companies and they don't qualify. Um, there's people who went into gig work because they're designers and that's all gig economy. They're not making lots of money. They're making contract by contract. So this all matters. And this idea that people are lazy or their, or their degree is worthless is also another thing that makes my head spin. You know, I think to Keith's point is that it would be nice if there was a way to have a a website or a person to talk to. And Keith, I'm with you. I like talking to a human. I don't like looking at a a screen and navigating this, but to be able to say, here's what I have. If this loan forgiveness comes through, what does, what is my best course of action? Should I finish this payment? Should I go down this road? What makes the most sense? I think that there needs to be a coordinated effort in that. And I wonder if there is a way to do it through either regional offices or something of that nature or use different agencies to act as conduits, whether it be your union, if you're in a union, whether it be with um, professional organizations. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, you know, real quick, Keith and, and Doug and I, because I'm going to put Keith first because I know he may have to jump uh, right as, as if in a minute or so. But Keith, any thoughts on what would you like to see if you could actually sit down with the Department of Education? What kind of customer service would you like to see? Certainly. So I'll start by saying, I think, you know, one of the things that I've shared with lots of friends about this is that this is great, right? The fact that they are willing to forgive $10,000 up to $20,000 or up to 10 or up to 20, depending on what you have is amazing. It doesn't go as far as I would like to see it go. Um, but I'm I'm not Keith, I lost you. Keith, we lost your audio. So I'm going to flip over to Doug. And in the meantime, Keith, why don't you take yourself off of your earbuds and maybe put us on speakerphone? Doug, go ahead. Sure. So Actually, a few years ago, and when I was in that that kind of moratorium period of of thinking that I had no hope for this, our unions at UMass Lowell hosted an event. I think the organization was called AFT. I could be wrong about that. Yep, yep. Those yep. folks, yeah, they came to campus to um, invite anyone who had questions about what to do about uh, what was going on with public service loan forgiveness. And so this was around must have been 2018 2019 something like that and so you know with with no hope thanks to the devos administration you know we were thinking like wow okay someone cares about us someone wants to respond to these questions it was very cool i mean they told us mostly things we had already heard although i guess that was nice you know validating the process of whatever it was 90 odd percentage of applicants it didn't didn't actually get it and i think more than that there was a kind of sneaky um effect there too where it helped to know that we weren't alone i, I mean i was in that room with both faculty and staff and there are some folks on the faculty side who had multifold more debt than i did mm-hmm. and who were multifold angrier than i was about 
how that all had gone down. And so that was nice. I think if that had become part of a series, that yeah. could have helped. And yeah. if our unions had been able to uh, you know, work on that messaging and, and get mm. more of that out, that would have been great. Um, but certainly, too, professional organizations, that is a seriously untapped yeah. chance because presumably everyone in that field is working somewhere where they know plenty of people with the same degree who can make more, but they're in the higher ed space because they love it and they feel that drive to it. And that discussion has not happened at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have like my finger on the pulse of what's going on with either, um, NASPA or ACPA and all of that. Yeah. Uh, NASPA. I'm not, you know, yep. I know yep. bits and pieces, but that could be huge as far right. as getting that out to membership for, Knowing more, sustaining that discussion. Let's put, hey, let's sorry hold about on that. that can one. you all see me, hear me now? I yeah, audible. I can hear you now, Keith. So why don't you finish your point so that we, yeah. and then we'll shift over to the professional organizations. But talk to us more about what you think the DOE could be doing. And you were saying that you, you know, going into this, you feel that more could be done in terms of how much uh, forgiveness is being provided. But keep going, Absolutely. Keith. Yeah. So I, I think you know. I just I think that that qualifier is important. Because I think that it's really easy to kind of dunk on things that aren't exactly what you want them to be. And yep. in the era that we currently live in, yep. compromise is not always viewed as something that is appreciated, right? And I mm-hmm. get that, but it's mm-hmm. also say thank you and then keep pushing, right? It's, yep. it's kind of my general yep. I will, um, perspective. <laughs> I will take this and now I will ask for a little bit more. Yes, exactly absolutely. that. And so I think that for me there needs to be more than an FAQ on a website. There needs to, so many people's circumstances are so, so unique Mm -hmm. that you really do need to have someone who's an expert on how to answer questions. If this, then that, you know, in my case, one of the conversations that I've had with my friends is, you know, it's up to $10,000. It's Mm -hmm. up to $20,000. Are they forgiving? I have, you know, I'm sitting on about 50 grand worth of loans at the moment. And so Am I receiving 10 or 20? I Am I receiving a full 10? Am I receiving a portion of 10? I don't know. And the reason right. for that is I was a Pell eligible um, student in undergrad, but I don't have $10,000 in undergraduate loans. Right. Um, most of my loans were for my master's degree. Yep. The, um, the question I also have is, what is my interest rate going to look like? Because the 5% cap is only for undergraduate loans. And right. the communication right. that they shared is that it'll be some combination of a cap on whatever the, the undergrad loans are at 5% and mm-hmm. then a weighted average of the, the like um, grad loans. So there are just a lot of questions that I have. You know, technically my undergraduate loans, I'm at, um, a, according to them, I'm at 109 payments um, mm-hmm. for those. But for my master's loans, I'm at 80. Yeah. And so is it, is it when I reach the threshold of 120 for my undergraduate loans that mm-hmm. this is forgiven? Is it 120 payments of my master's loans? Is there are so plus many. That, yeah. No, your, your point is absolutely correct in that when you look at this and you say, all right, I have this many in the undergrad realm. I have this in the grad realm. When I was Pell eligible, it was this, but I was also at CUNY 
what do I do to address that? You know, you have, it's almost like they need a concierge service, which I realize that's not how the government works. Um, in my mind, in this like completely, you know, wackadoo brain that I have, I know there are a lot of people who used to work in financial aid who are now retired or semi-retired. How do we not work with this group of people who A, understand the language, B, understand the laws, C, understand the loans and are able to say, look, would you be interested in being part of some kind of, you know, you know, force that goes out there and is able to answer questions regionally in person or by phone to be able to do this and that they were able to kind of work people through these processes because I absolutely hear what you're throwing down there, Keith, is that what we need to do is not worry about like, what does the website say? There is going to be a website. There is going to be information and all that. But that idea of everyone's situation is nuanced. Everyone's situation is real. Um, And everybody's pressure points in all of this are like, are you kidding me? Why does this apply? But that doesn't apply. I don't get it. and I, and I think there needs to be a simplicity of all of this. My other hope in my, you know, maniac brain is that when they're pulling this apart is that these problems help to inform changes moving forward, because that's my biggest issue with all of this when it comes to student loan forgiveness, any conversation about it, any conversation, there are problems with higher education, the cost, how we position this. I mean, I remember being in meetings with students who were trying to come into whatever institution I was at at the time and the vice president for enrollment services saying to a student and his parents, what you need to do is apply for a parent plus loan and you will get rejected from that, but then you will get accepted for this. And I'm like, oh my God, is that what we're telling people as far as debt and making sure they get more debt? And those Parent PLUS loans are one of the worst loans when it comes to interest and what people are finding themselves shouldered with. And that impacts our most vulnerable students. The Parent PLUS loans impacts so many of these uh, vulnerable students and their families. And we just have to change how we're positioning the tools that are supposed to be there to help students make it into higher education and earn that degree. I want to be mindful of time. We're coming up on just about six more minutes left in the show. Um, this has been a great conversation with Keith and Doug. Uh, Keith, I really appreciate your honesty, both of you. I appreciate Doug uh, Cooper and Keith Garcia. Uh, I want to appreciate both of your honesty and both of your things because the world isn't rosy glasses. This is all work that we have to get through and make sure we do this. I want to tease out a couple of our shows coming up, and then I want to kind of close out with this idea of what could the profession be doing better for folks. Doug started this conversation, but thinking about what unions can do, what institutions can do, and what, frankly, some of our professional organizations could do. So I'm going to come back to that after I tease out some upcoming shows next week. The Think Tank returns. It's a monthly show where we bring in some great folks from across higher ed to talk about top issues uh, and what we're all kind of considering. So that's next week on September the 6th at 12 noon. Um, And then our next 
two shows after that, speaking of the Department of Education, there's the USDOE completion grants that have just been announced, what that means. And so we have experts on that program, what completion grants are all about. Completion is something that is a is a real sticking point in my in my craw about what we're actually telling people is going to happen when they go into higher education in terms of trying to get that degree and what actually ends up happening. So I'm very excited about this conversation about completion grants. And then finally, we're going to be looking, the midterm elections are coming up and we're going to be talking about voting on campus and uh, how do uh, how does voting and civic engagement actually work and how is it looking? And we're going to be bringing in experts from a couple of really great organizations to talk about that. So to close us out, um, I want to start uh, again with Keith, and then we'll go to Doug. And uh, I want to talk about what we think maybe the the uh, higher education could be doing better for itself. Um, as far as this is concerned, uh, Doug brought up uh, the um, uh, AFT, which is the Associ- Associ- uh, American Federation of Teachers, excuse me, it's a union. They've been doing a lot with this. They've They actually have a very... Um, very good Twitter account. So if you're on the Twitter, follow AFT. They've got a great Twitter account. And they've been putting out a lot about what they're doing to inform their union members, um, and uh, which is great. But it can't just be one organization. I haven't heard, and if you are listening and your university or your HR office has put out some uh, info sessions on this, I would love to hear from you. So you'll have ways to get in touch with me on that. Um, But I know that professional organizations are just not stepping up to the plate. Uh, Keith, I'd love your thoughts on this, and then I'm going to go to Doug. Yeah, I think that, you know, I I have been a member of ACPA and NASPA and the Association of Fraternity and Sorority Advisors for years. I'm coming up mm-hmm. on a decade in membership in um, in both of the in all three of those organizations. Actually, I've already reached that milestone in fraternity and sorority life because I was volunteering before I, I started working in higher ed. Um, there's no reason why there isn't a coordinated effort among all mm-hmm. of the professional associations associated with higher education and the functional areas they're in to make sure that their members are paying attention to what is happening within this particular landscape of policy. Um, I have my misgivings <laughs> about our professional associations. Yep. I will hold those for, that, that is a different show. Okay. But we'll have you back. Um, I have I have it, several things I want you back on. I wanna talk about uh, fraternity sorority life. I just wanna talk about that other stuff. So go ahead, keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I just think it's, there's no reason, they, they're coordinated enough to provide comment on things like, um, the uh, exemption statuses for salaries for staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love for them to find the same energy to make sure that the staff who are impacted by those decisions around salaries um, can actually find some reprieve. And then I think beyond the professional associations, frankly, every institution of higher education that is a nonprofit institution should be ensuring that all of their staff who work on their campus have received a message about what this looks like and providing staff support on campus to do that. Yep, I agree with you. Good good calls on that. Uh, Doug, what are your thoughts? Well, so just because I've been at UMass Lowell for long enough, I think the one that occurs to me first is the working through the unions. It's mm-hmm. It's something where I think we sometimes get a little accustomed to like, 
Oh, look, an email from the union. Okay. And, and we, we get a little desensitized. I mean, they do, they do really valuable work and it's, it's easy to forget about that. A lot of it happens by the scenes, behind the scenes. It's done by a really small cadre of people who have stepped up and have volunteered and are serving on exec boards and things. But I think if we could kind of meet in the middle somewhere, if the unions were more uh, planful and purposeful with um, either partnering with uh, AFT or other of those kinds of organizations to make these kinds of conversations and resources more visible, right? Yep. And then if we at those who are um, part of part of union shops, if we took that time and attention to put back into that, that we could make that more visible, make those conversations happen, and that it wouldn't take a whole lot for that to really explode with with public institutions almost anywhere, community colleges and the like. And if all of those people rose up in a way that said, like, we want this, this is something we care about, that it would it would be impossible to miss. Absolutely. I agree with both of you. I'm looking at, um, I'm a member of a union at one of the universities I teach at, and they've done nothing uh, to make aware of that. But it's one of these unions that doesn't only uh, uh, impact the education space. It is a very big union with a lot of representation from everything from fast food to higher education and everything in between. Um, so it's very likely that they're not putting a lens on this because it's not their bread and butter group, to be honest with you. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot more we could be doing. I think there's a lot more conversation. I would be remiss not to say to people, October 31st is the deadline. I will put um, a variety of links in the show notes for the replay. And if you are listening to this on Apple podcast on uh Spotify or iHeartRadio, it'll be in the show notes um, on that. And so I want to thank both uh, Keith and Doug for their time. Keith, Garcia, have a wonderful time at your friend's wedding. Go out there and get a good card. (laughs) Um, Doug Cooper, always a pleasure to have you here. And I hope you're all able to join us on Tuesday, the 6th of September for the return of the Think Tank episode for season two. And uh, for those of you working on campuses, this weekend may be your move-in weekend. So if you are working this weekend, at least stop for a second and have a hot dog on uh, Labor Day and enjoy yourself. This is Office Hours with Dr. Vo. It is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded weekly on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Links to subscribe are available through my link tree, which is scrolling across the center of the screen right now. Now, go out there and learn something, everybody. Have a great day.